Hello, I'm Kristen Marchand, and this is the Alpiango Line. Today we're launching a new oral history series in which Martina Koulis, a university student from Wilno, entertains and informs us as she gallivants about town, working as a sort of roving summer reporter. She's already had more than a few interesting conversations with some very experienced local people who just happened to have grown up or settled in our area back in the day. As it turns out, the people Martina is talking with are also perfect eyewitnesses to the social history of the upper Madawaska Valley, their local memories often stretching as far back as the early and mid 20th century. Of course, Martina's work is not the first oral history project for our area. The public library in Barry's Bay completed a similar project 30 years ago when 34 local people were interviewed, some of them born late in the 19th century. In fact, we recently did a show, Lilies of the Valley, based on three of those distinguished citizens of the township of the Madawaska Valley, Rose Burkachapeski, Bernice O'Grady-Billings, and Evelyn Hildebrandt Villeneuve, who were all interviewed for that 1990s oral history project. Indeed, after you finished listening to today's show, you might check out their stories in that Lilies of the Valley episode. Our local public library even managed to publish a two-volume set of books based on those 1990s interviews, entitled Madawaska Valley Memories. And those memories are still available today for your reading pleasure at the Public Library in Barry's Bay. Best of all, earlier this year, Stephanie Pleban, the Parks and Recreation Coordinator for the Township of Madawaska Valley, approached the Station Keepers, our local heritage and culture nonprofit group, and offered to fund any heritage or culture project they might want to come up with thanks to an Ontario Government Summer Student Grant. Well, the station keepers immediately thought of Madawaska Valley memories. And so it was. The new station keepers oral history project was born. It hopes to gather at least 15 interviews this summer, all of them dealing with the life and times of the upper Madawaska Valley. It is even hoped that the station keepers might eventually see their way clear to publishing a new 21st century edition of Madawaska Valley memories. But until that happens, we thought you might like to hear some of the actual voices who are contributing to this new oral history series that Martina began collecting this past month. So here's a conversation she had with Teresa Prince, the chair of the Barry's Bay Heritage and Genealogy Society and a retired primary school teacher who grew up on a farm near Barry's Bay way back when. But given the need for social distancing in this horrible pandemic COVID-19 times, the conversation you are about to hear reflects two people sitting six feet apart in an open garage doorway at the front of Teresa's home in Barry's Bay. Now over to you, Martina. So we'll kind of start off with, who are you? Uh, where were you born? Where did you grow up? Where were your parents? Okay. My name is Teresa Prince. I was born in a log farmhouse along the former Apiango colonization road, just west of Barry's Bay, with the assistance of the local doctor, Dr. McDermott. He was our village doctor. I was the fifth in a family of uh, six children, four girls and two boys. My parents were Martin Kuznatsky and Pauline Kowalski. I was born during wartime, um, and years later, 
My mother told me that I was a very scrawny baby and she did not expect me to survive. I was born, um, I grew up on the farm without any hydro, without any running water or indoor plumbing. And during, it was a time when girls took their place in the fields, raking hay, digging potatoes and picking stones. English was not my first language. In my household, my parents spoke a mixture of Polish and Kashuk. And um, when my oldest sister started school, she did not know how to speak English, and so I think she may have had to repeat the first grade. And since we had no vehicle, we had to walk everywhere. It was three miles into town. We walked to church, to school, and to the store. And prior to starting school, um, I had no concept of what school was going to be like, but I was eager to start. Um, my, my earliest memories are growing up on the farm with my younger sister, Rose. She, the other children were at school already. And I remember the Eganville Creamery coming, the driver from the Eganville Creamery coming, and he would pick up the cream. And uh, we could not speak English, so every time he arrived, he always looked for the two little girls that spoke Polish. Um, so I think you mentioned about the doctor, so I kind of want to go back to that. So was it, there was one doctor at the time? At that time when I was born, I believe there was one doctor. Okay. Dr. McDermott. And his office was in the little house beside the post office. The house is gone. Uh, it's a parking lot for the uh, drugstore now. Oh, wow. Okay. Interesting. And then you were saying that um, you grew up speaking to, to uh, Kashub in Polish. So what was it like when you first went to school yourself? By the time I started school, I had learned English. Okay. So, um, but we walked to school. It was like three miles to school. And um, I remember the very first morning that I started school. We all started off very, very early. We all walked into town because my oldest sister was in a wedding party. Okay. And my parents caught the bus to go to Shrine Hill in Wilno to the wedding. And so when I arrived at school, I was there very early. And I remember a girl, she was the policeman, the local policeman's daughter, and she brought this big dog to school. Um, so I tried and held they used to have weddings. Um, so, like, is that where they had the actual wedding? Or what, like, you, sorry, you mentioned that, right? The wedding party at the Shrine Hill? Yeah. Am I understanding that correctly? The weddings were usually held at home. Okay. Rather than in a, in a hall. And, uh, people would build an outside platform and they would hire a fiddler and maybe somebody with a guitar and uh, the reception was held at the homestead. Okay, interesting. Was your wedding like that or no? My wedding? Yeah. My wedding was in the Kashubian Hall, which is known as the Stadua. Okay, was that the, the, it's kind of like a large, really big barn almost, yes. right? Yes, yeah. Okay. That's a nice, that's a nice uh, building. Yes, I have a reception in. Very nice. <laughs> so, how many siblings did you have again? There were six of us. Six. Four girls and oh. two boys. Okay. And then you were saying that at the time you were born, it was kind of the the girls were helping out at the same time. Do you think that was kind of due 
to the war that was going on, or had that just always been that way? That's just the way it was in all the families. Yeah. The girls took part in working in the fields just as much as the boys. Yeah, everyone kind of had to I kind of liked it. I, I didn't mind it at all. And um, even after I started school and I was still in the primary grades, when I'd come home, I would, my, I would just go and gather, gather the cows. I would take the dog and go and get the cows for milking. And nobody had to tell me to do that. I just enjoyed doing that. And mm -hmm. I always did it. Yeah. I took the dog with me, though. <laughs> <laughs> I would be the same way. I definitely like a little companion with me. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so, and then you were saying in between, do you want to kind of talk about your parents a little bit more, maybe, while we're still... Okay, um, growing up on the farm was rather difficult for us because when I was in grade two, my dad was struck by a hit and run driver wow. at the entrance going to Valley Manor. He was walking home to the farm on a Saturday night. There was a wedding in town that night and somebody came along the curve just too fast and struck him and left him to die in the ditch. So the neighbors heard the commotion and called the police. Mm -hmm. The police attended and called Dr. Dooley. Dr. Dooley was in town at that time. And the police brought him home. There was no hospital at that time. He had a very badly busted knee. And so he didn't walk for almost a year. He survived, but he didn't recover completely. And so he really wasn't able to uh, support the family very much. Mm -hmm. So it was my mom that supported us and she basically raised us on the five dollar family allowance that we got okay. and what we could grow on the farm. Okay. Wow. <laughs> I had no idea. Uh, so do you think um, kind of, I would, your mom sounds like a very strong woman to kind of take on that role. Do you think maybe that kind of inspired you going forward in life? I always liked going to school and I wanted to go ahead. I was the first one in my family that continued past grade 8. Okay. Um, again, when I finished grade 10, there was no full funding okay. past grade 10. You had to pay, you had to buy your own books, you had to pay tuition and so on. Mm -hmm. So I was in a very great financial difficulty. So I left school and I worked for two and a half years. But I always wanted to go back to school. Ever since I was in grade two, I wanted to be a teacher. Sister Anacetus inspired me because she would put me in charge of the class. She, for some reason, had to leave the classroom for a, a little while and she put someone in, in charge of the class. And I often was one of the ones chosen. Mm -hmm. And that inspired me to become a teacher. And, um, but after grade 10, as I said, there was no full funding, so I had to leave school and I went to work. I went to work to Killaloo doing housework. I cried that first day. I wanted so badly to go to school. I could still feel the sting of the tears, and I, but I was determined. I was determined that I was going to save my money and return to school. So after working in Killaloo for a while, I came to Barry's Bay and I worked. I took a couple of, 
other nanny jobs. One was for Jimmy and Monica Conway, and the other one was for Teresa and Danny Murray when their children were born. Mm -hmm. And so one day, Teresa Murray um, encouraged me, or she asked, the singer sewing machine man was there, and she encouraged me, she tried to encourage me to buy a, a sewing machine, but I said, no, I'm planning on going back to school. And so Danny and her encouraged me, and I went back to grade 11 after Christmas. Wow, that's very impressive. The determination, I can appreciate that for sure. So when you were working in Killaloo, were you living with the families there? Yeah. Was that the first time you were away from your family? For like an extended period, I guess? Yeah, that would have been the first time. How was that? <laughs> well, I didn't mind it because my friend lived across, I worked for the family that lived across the road. Okay. So I did know somebody. Okay, so it was, it was pretty common, I guess, for people to nanny then? Yeah. Okay. Back in those days when, when women were having their babies, they often hired a young girl and the girl usually lived with the family. Is that just because they had so many kids or it was just didn't really matter how many kids? I, I think it was just to give the mother a rest. Understandable, yeah. <laughs> for sure. I think I can understand that. So then where did you uh, end up doing your education after you worked for those three when years? When I went back, the high school was where our beer store is in okay. Barry's Bay. Very big change then. <laughs> so I completed the grade 12 there and then I went to Renfrew to the St. Joseph's Academy for grade 13. And after that I went to Ottawa Teachers College in Ottawa. Okay, so how many years did that take then? Ottawa Teachers College was only one year back then, okay. and you could go after grade 13. Now you have to have your, you have to get your Bachelor of Ed before you become a teacher. Yeah, so yeah. you need three years of university and uh, the extra year for your Bachelor of Ed. But as I was teaching, I continued taking courses and I finally did get my Bachelor of Education. <laughs> That's awesome. I'm sure that was a very proud moment in your life for sure. So did you have your did you have your graduation then in Ottawa? The graduation was at the Natural National Arts Center in Ottawa. Okay. Did any of your family come or? Uh, no. But there were other girls. My sister was also going for a, a teacher. Okay. Because I was out of school for two and a half years, I caught up to her and I continued finishing my school with her. Mm -hmm. And then there was some another girl from Barry's Bay and a girl from Wilno. And we all boarded in the same building. And our graduation ball, I guess you would call it, was mm -hmm. at the Chateau Laurier. Very nice. <laughs> so uh, when you graduated, were you planning on coming back here? or When at Teachers College, our instructors always told us never to go back to your hometown to work, to move on, and get a job someplace else. I didn't listen. I always wanted to come back to Barry's Bay. I would never move away. And so everybody else was starting to fill out applications and I thought, well, I'll do it later on. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know where. But we came home for Easter. And one of the, I guess the, it was the, it was local school boards at that time. So okay. it was the Barry's Bay uh, separate school board. Okay. The chairperson and the principal 
came to our house, they walked through the snow because the road wasn't plowed. We didn't have a vehicle, so they didn't plow the bit of road for us. So they left their car on the highway and they walked to the farmhouse through the snow and they asked if I wanted a job. And they took us to view St. John Bosco School. They gave us a tour of St. John Bosco School, my sister and I. Mm -hmm. um, and that was basically our interview. Just a tour of the school and we were hired. Wow. <laughs> so that's then where you ended up working, I'm assuming? I, yeah, I started at St. John Bosco School and then they moved the primary grades to St. Joseph's School beside St. Hedwig's Church. And then finally in 1982, St. Joseph's School was closed and so everybody was uh, transferred to St. John Bosco and that's where I uh, retired from. Okay, so when you were teaching, were there um, nuns teaching with you alongside or no? Was that before? When I was a student, all my teachers from grade 1 to grade 13 were nuns. Okay. Um, at Teachers College, no. And it was very, I found it, uh, it was very different because we had male teachers mm -hmm. at Teachers College and that was my first experience with a male teacher. Oh, wow. <laughs> it was a bit different. <laughs> yeah, for sure, especially not being used to it and having nuns and like, compared to that. can just imagine. Yeah. So um, I think maybe we'll go back a little bit to your childhood and we can talk maybe about, um, you were saying that when you were in grade two you already knew you wanted to be a teacher. Well, did you ever kind of vary from that or no? I always wanted to be a, become a teacher, but I had no idea where I would have to go, how I would pay for my education, and how I would get there. Mm -hmm. And so as I kind of continued on, I kind of forgot about it, or I didn't really forget about it, but I put it to the back of my, mm -hmm. to the back, on the back burner. Yeah. But I always did want to be that teacher. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got your dream. So um, maybe you could tell me a little bit of um, what a, like, a typical day, I guess, was like growing up on the farm. In the summertime, it was working in the fields, raking hay, weeding the garden, get, getting the cows, in the winter time, we spent our time outside if we could. We did a lot of uh, sleigh riding, uh, sleigh riding on pieces of cardboard. Or the my brothers made you know the barrels that they used to put salty pork in. Okay. They would take the barrel apart and it was kind of like heaved. So they would nail that on the back of a board and that would be our toboggan, and we would attach a string to it to pull it back up the hill. So we spent a lot of time tobogganing, we spent a lot of time playing in the snow, playing fox and goose. Um, and in, when we were inside the house we had to shell corn mm -hmm. for seed for the next season, or shell peas, or um, um, feathers. We had to pluck the feathers oh. to make for pillows, Oh. to make into pillows. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So what would you say was maybe like your favorite favorite thing to do when you were younger? Hard to pick just one. If there's more than one, no problem. <laughs> we spent a lot of, I guess I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time playing school too. 
we would cut out uh, figures from the Ethan's and Sears catalog, and those were our students. We gave them names, mm -hmm. and so we spent time <laughs> teaching. Teaching. Them. You were just practicing <laughs> yeah. for the future, I guess. <laughs> That's awesome. So um, Eaton's and Sears. So that used to be a pretty big thing around here, right? Like that was kind of if you ordered something from there. It was yeah. There was the two main catalogs, Eaton's and Sears, and you would just uh, send your order in, and it came in the mail. Okay. So <laughs> later, later on, then uh, there were there was an Eaton's and a Sears outlet in Barry's Bay, but before that, you would mail it in. Okay. Where was that located? I guess Toronto. You mean the the outlets? Yeah, the outlets here. The outlets. Uh, uh, Eaton's was located where Street Church Street Flowers is today. Oh, okay. Beside the uh, railway station, mm -hmm. and then I think it moved to where the Valley Gazette is today. Okay. And Sears, after Eaton stopped, then Sears was in there also. But Sears was across the road from Palbetsky's store, which is used to be Zilney's. Rosie Zilney's clothing store, Sears was in there for a long time. Oh, okay. So you'd always have to go there to pick up any orders then? Um, okay, so I think, do you have anything to kind of add for childhood? I think we've kind of covered most of it. Um, I'll probably come up with more questions as we go. In childhood, we were never bored. We always had tasks to do and we couldn't wait to get our tasks done so that we would have free time to play. And we always found something to do. In the summertime, or in the fall, I remember also playing in the leaves. When all the leaves would fall off the trees, we would uh, make houses out of the leaves yeah. and play in the leaves. Or we would climb trees, um, pick berries. There was always something to do. Yeah. Not like nowadays, a lot of kids get very bored very quickly. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think growing up we always did that too with the leaves. You make the little borders and you, yeah, I remember doing that as well. It's, it's nice growing up here, I have to say. <laughs> Especially now going to school in Toronto, I'm like, oh, I kind of miss it a little bit. <laughs> um, so I guess when you were a teenager more so, um, what were your social activities or your leisure activities at that age? When I was younger, I don't... I think I, we never went out for Halloween because we were on the farm. But as I became a teenager, the activities, the dances at the pavilion, at the Lakeside Pavilion, every Saturday we looked forward to going to the dances. Uh, when I was growing up, people didn't go out during the week, but people worked very hard all week and they looked forward to going out on Saturday night. And the dances were a big. Uh, a big uh, drawing affair at the pavilion. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like when you were saying growing up, like you worked really hard to get kind of like that break time. So it didn't really change when you got older. It's still kind of the same mindset almost. I think so. Yeah. Yeah, that, I think that's a great mindset to have, get your stuff done <laughs> so you can enjoy it for sure. Mm -hmm. So those dances, did they have live music then? They had live music. They had, at first it was uh, Phil Hearn. And John, Johnny, John Coolis was the caller. Phil Hearn was on guitar, and Mickey Ramleski played the fiddle. And then it was the Poplinski, Joe Poplinski band. Okay. And his sons, they played for a long time. 
And the caller was a man from, I think he was a Mr. Orr from Cumbermere. But it was always the same. You would have a square dance, which was first change, second change, and breakdown. And then you had a couple of waltzes and polkas and a couple of round dances. And then that pattern would repeat. You'd have a square dance again all evening. Oh, wow. So how did you happen to learn all those? Did you learn those at home? Because I know, I think I only know one of them. <laughs> uh, I was only in grade, uh, I was only about eight years old when my oldest sister got married and she got married on the farm and they had built an outside platform and that's the first time I saw square dancing and I really fell in love with square dancing. I wanted to do that mm -hmm. and so after the wedding we would pretend we were, my sisters and I, my, my two sisters and I, we would pretend we were square dancing and we would have like shadow dancers yeah. in with us and we would go through the routine and that's, I just love dancing. <laughs> in the same way. <laughs> that's a pretty good way to learn. And the, and the pole, and when we started going to the dances at the pavilion, I remember somebody saying to me for a round dance, just go one, two, one, two, one, two, three, four, one, two. Go one, two, three, four, one way and one, two, the other way. And then a polka or a, or a waltz is one, two, three, one, two, three. A little bit easier. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so at those dances, was it uh, mostly people from Bears Bay or people come from farther? At the pavilion, there yeah. was people would come from other areas. They would come from Willow, uh, Whitney. There's always people from Whitney. I and Cumbermere, probably as far as Whitney, Killaloo. I don't remember Eganville, if anybody came from Eganville. Yeah. And would they drive then? Or? Yeah, the, the guys would... Back in those days, when a guy turned 18, he had a car. Most guys at 18 bought their own cars. Because mm -hmm. they kind of almost needed it, I guess, in a way? Yeah. Or they were already out working. Yeah. So, um, did, when did you get your first car? Let's go there. Well, I was already married. <laughs> so that's when you first got your first that's, car? I didn't learn to drive till I was already married. Okay. Um, so how did you meet your husband? At the dance. Okay, at that dance at the pavilion? At the pavilion, at one of the dances in the pavilion. He happened to be in the same square that I was in. And he must have been impressed met. by your dance moves, maybe. <laughs> yeah. So who were you married? I married Edmund Prince from Wilno, okay. and his family were among the first group of Polish Kashyyyks to come to this area and to settle along the Epiongo colonization road. Do you know a little bit about his family history? I do. I have, I have researched his back, his families, and so I have written some family tree books. Okay. On on the princes, and his mother was uh, a Larbetsky from Shrine Hill, so I have done there. And his grandmother on his mother's side was a Kuya. Okay. So I have done all those family trees. Yeah, I think I saw some of those last names are very familiar. I, I live in Wilno, so they're familiar, but I also saw the book titles of some of the ones you've written. Um, so did he grow up on a farm as well then? He grew up on the farm. He was the oldest of three children. Okay. Um, and he had to walk to school across, across the field. In the winter time, the snow was deep, and so he went to school section number 10, 
which is located way out between between Wilno and Round Lake. Okay. And so it was um, it was closer to go to Wilno to sh to the school on Skibos Hill, mm -hmm. but to keep the school open, they needed so many students, so he had to go to number to ten. Oh wow, that must have been frustrating. Yeah, and he. He liked, He also liked going to school, but he had to quit school to help out on the farm. Mm -hmm. So I think he only went to grade 8. Yeah. Well, I'm sure it was also different even having less siblings to help kind of spread the work out, I guess, in a way. Mm -hmm. I'm sure that made a bit of a difference. Uh, so what year did you get married in? I got married in 1966. Okay. And what did your wedding look like? Oh, it was in, um, in, as I said, in the Kashubi Hall. We got married at St. Hedwig's Church. Father Sobolski, Father Norbert Sobolski married us. And the reception was in halfway at the Kashubi Hall. Very nice. <laughs> and so, um, I guess we can kind of move into now, I guess, more married, what married life was like. So, how many years were you married? My husband is dead 20 years. He died in the year 2000, so okay. we weren't even married 40 years yet. He died very suddenly. He had a dissection of the aorta, which is like the aorta, which is the main artery in your body. The layers tore apart, and so the, the blood flows, blood went all through his body. Yeah. And so, um, how many... How many kids did you have? I had four children. I have two surviving children. Okay. Um, I have a son that lives in town, in Berries Bay, and a daughter that lives out in Calgary. The, our first baby died um, probably because there wasn't the sophisticated equipment. Our hospital was new, and they didn't have the equipment that had she been born in the city where there was more equipment, I'm sure she would have survived. And then we lost her 12-year-old daughter to meningitis in 1982. Okay. Sorry to hear that. That's got to be tough having two kids and losing them. Um, we can move on now maybe to... Um, so what did your husband do for a career? For work? Yeah. My husband was a timberjack operator. He mm -hmm. had his own timberjack skitter. Before that, he always he started off when he was quite young in uh, working in the bush, mm -hmm. uh, cutting logs. Uh, actually, he has a, a certificate, a citation certificate that says the hard hat saved his life because a tree came down when he was working in Kiosk. And... Uh, it glanced off his hard hat. And back in those days, that was in the 50s, there was no road to Kaios, so he was brought out by train and he spent a few days in the hospital in Pembroke. Okay. Uh, but he always worked in the bush and then he, he had his own skitter. So going back to you were talking about um, kind of the hospital here and how maybe if it had like more advanced technology and um, if it was just better equipped it could have been a different result. So um, 
What were your experiences with hospitals, I guess, other than that? So when you had your first child, did you have both all your children in the hospital here? Yeah, all okay. my children were born at St. Francis Memorial Hospital. Okay, so and then you were saying that you were born at home, at right? Home. So when did and did your mom have any children in the hospital here or no? No. No, okay. No. So it was built after, much after. Yeah, the hospital opened in nineteen sixty. Okay. And uh, no. Some of the some of the women from around here would go to Pembroke to the hospital or maybe to Redford to the hospital. Yeah. But we were all, all my siblings were born in the farmhouse with the assistance of Dr. McDermott. Mm -hmm. And for years after, he would send a Christmas card to the household of all his babies. Oh wow. And he would sign it, he'd say, to my babies, Merry Christmas oh. to my babies. That's and, I, and I can remember the Christmas card coming in the mail. Every year, wow, yeah. that must have been a lot of cards to write. Yeah. I can't imagine doctors doing that nowadays. No. <laughs> Definitely they, not. They wouldn't have time to, uh, to do that today. No, that's awesome though. That's like such a small, like little sentiment that you still, you remember after all those years. Um, so, is there anything that you want to talk about that we haven't really got into yet? I just want to touch a little bit more on my early school memories. Growing up, my earliest memories are of everyone being very poor, but folks did the best they could with what they had and everyone got by. When I first started school at St. Joseph's School beside the church in the early 1950s, everybody walked to church, to school. And during the winters, the streets were never plowed, so the students just tramped down the snow. And I remember the girls walked up the Girl Street, which was Dunst, which is Dunn Street today, and the boys used uh, the Boy Street, which is Bay Street. And that routine continued throughout the whole history of St. Joseph's School. During my first year, when the weather got cold, I did not have a coat to wear to school. I had to miss school for about a week until a Mrs. Leo Glovchesky sewed a coat for me from a man's overcoat. And I still remember the coat was very heavy with big buttons because she kept the buttons that were with, on the coat when it was a man's coat. But I wore it to school and I wore it to church. Back then, only the farm kids stayed at school for lunch. And the church bells and uh, the whistle at Conway's Mill signaled the beginning and the end of noon hour. After we ate our lunch, the school was locked during the noon hour when the nuns went to the convent to eat their lunch. And when it rained, we would go across the road and take shelter in the horse's stable. And when the stables were torn down, we stood under a big pine tree in the schoolyard. In the wintertime, when it was very cold, we would go into St. Hedwig's Church and we would pray the Stations of the Cross. At school, I remember we always lined up whenever we left the classroom, and we sat in rows of desks mounted to the floor. And whenever an adult entered the room, we always stood up, and we always stood up to ask a question or to give an answer. Learning was mostly done by rote or through memorization. 
um, we memorized a lot of poems, and two poems that I still remember that influenced my life are Just a Minute and Try Again. I can remember the smell of linseed oil and dustbane. Linseed oil was sprayed on a cloth to wipe the blackboards, and dustbane was a green, oily substance that we sprinkled on the floor before we swept the floor to keep the dust down. I don't know if anyone uses it today. And it was the girls' job to sweep the floors during the afternoon recess. So that's a little bit about the early days of going to school. Uh, I'd like to talk a bit about my pastime or free time or playtime. During the winter time, we spent many happy hours sleigh riding on homemade toboggans. We had many hills, but the best hill and the closest hill from our house was down was from our house down to the highway. So we had to be careful that we didn't uh, go out onto the highway. Although back then there weren't very many cars. The trail had a few curves, and I remember it being so much fun, especially at nighttime when the moon, when the full moon was shining. Other winter play involved the popular game called Fox and Goose. I don't know if anybody plays it anymore. And then of course making forts in the snow and just walking on the top of the snow crust. Summer fun was skipping with a rope from the barn and hopscotch. For hopscotch we would save fancy little pieces of glass that we found either along the highway or when something got broken. And when we were finished the game, we would save these little pieces and we would hide them for the next time. And of course, everybody played bat and ball, and the bat was just a piece of board that you would find lying around on the farm. Now moving on to Christmas time, as a child, I remember getting Christmas presents only once, and that was before my dad's hit-and-run accident. After that, there were no presents for us, but we got oranges, and we got apples, and we got peanuts in the shell. The focus of Christmas at my house was on attending midnight mass and having a special Christmas dinner together as a family. We would walk three miles by the light of the moon or with a flashlight along Highway 60 to St. Hedwig's Church for Midnight Mass. I particularly remember the Polish Christmas carols known as Kalendi. And even today, I still look forward to hearing those traditional hymns. Sometimes they are sung and sometimes they're not. <laughs> Christmas dinner always involved our own raised chickens, vegetables from our garden, and gravy made with summer savory. Mom always used summer savory in the gravy. And Mom's Christmas cake, and ginger snaps that she filled with uh, homemade icing. And then we would spend the rest of the day playing outside, and that was our Christmas. <laughs> Sounds pretty good to me. Yeah. And moving on to the village expansion, 
In the 1950s, the village of Barry's Bay experienced a great boom in its economic expansion. We saw the town develop from a struggling backwoods community to the hub of the Madawaska Valley. At one time, Main Street was known as the Upayango Colonization Road, and it was just a narrow, dusty trail. So in the 1950s, the Department of uh, Highways cut down some trees and widened the street. And Upayango Line became a paved highway known as King's Highway 60. St. Joseph's High School opened in 1958 where the beer store is today and the students wore uniforms. As well, the Barry's Bay Community Center, a covered rink, was built and opened in 1950 where Value Mart is today. And they were, I can remember, large hockey games every weekend. The cars would line up on either side of the road and the arena would be full. Also in the 1950s, Ambrose and Jean Palbetsky opened Grey Lunch, a popular restaurant on Main Street known simply as Jason's. I remember a bottle of pop or an ice cream cone cost six cents. And a number of years later, the family closed the restaurant and they opened up Palbetsky's Variety Store. It was a one-stop grocery store, still known as Jason's. And that family business continued till the end of summer until 2013. Now the building has been renovated into apartments. Mm -hmm. And of course the Bay Theatre opened on Bay Street in, uh, on mm -hmm. June the 1st, 1953. And we went from school as a whole group to see a few movies. Admission was 25 cents, and today the building is also renovated into apartments known as Bay Apartments. Lorraine's Pharmacy opened in January of 1954 in the building occupied today by Madawaska Coffee Cafe. Lorraine Chapesky was the sole pharmacist back then, but that same year she married Ron Briggs, and he's, he was also a pharmacist. And not many people remember that building as the drugstore because 10 years later, the drugstore moved across the street into the building that is the pet shop today known as Catnap, Catnap and Lazy Dog Pet Outfitters. And it lasted there for a long time until uh, about 1984 when Lorraine's IDA moved across the street to the newly constructed constructed building where it continues as Lorraine's Pharmacy today. But that pet shop, before the drugstore moved in there, that's where Stedman's first set up when Stedman's came to Barry's Bay. Another store uh, was um, Kitz's Red and White. It was the first self-serve grocery store in town and it opened on Thanksgiving weekend in 1954 by a very young couple, Charlie and Joan Kitts, and their store was next to the Balmoral Hotel. At one time that building had been a Witkowski's butcher shop, and today it is McDougal Insurance. I remember going to the opening and getting a free balloon, and that was a big deal. 
The Barry's Bay Medical Center opened on Main Street in October of 1958, and that's where Dr. Andrew Chepesky set up his medical practice. Now, Lorraine Briggs and Dr. Andrew Chepesky were siblings, and that building still exists today. The upstairs is used as offices, and at one time the doctor's office downstairs was renovated as um, Bay Cafe, but I'm not sure what's there uh, today. And of course, plans and fundraising were well underway to build a 30-bed hospital in the village of Barry's Bay. And the idea was initiated by Monsignor Bernatsky, parish priest at St. Hedwig's Parish, and with the help of uh, Henry Chepesky. Over the years, the community of Barry's Bay continued to develop and expand with the construction of new schools, Madawaska Valley District High School, a senior's apartment, new supermarkets, the Valley Manor, the Water Tower Lodge, a new medical center for the doctors beside the hospital, and a palliative care facility within the hospital. So Barry's Bay has always continued to grow, and today the community continues with the redevelopment of Valley Manor in the works which we are all waiting and hoping and praying for will soon get started. That was great extra tidbits of information. It's really good. There's, I feel like there's so much to talk about that sometimes it's almost overwhelming. Do you want to talk maybe a little bit about the research that you've done? Because I know you've done quite a bit, just yeah. even for my internet searches. Like, I always had an interest in our local history and in my ancestral background. Mm -hmm. And so when my husband died so suddenly in the year 2000, I kind of turned to genealogy to fill the lonely, lonely days and the years. Yeah. And it's just something that grows on you. And, um, and we formed uh, back in, I guess, oh, not sure how long ago. We formed a genealogy group in Barry's Bay and we're still going. We still meet once a month. Of course now we can't with with the virus, but mm -hmm. I'm sure when it's over we'll meet again. Yeah. And uh, I was also very interested in what Barry's Bay was like. And I had an uncle that I used to kind of look after, my mom's brother, Walter Kowalski. And he used to tell me stories about when he worked in the lumber camps and what things were like and, mm -hmm. and so on. Do you remember any of those stories? Um, well, see, my mom, I don't remember any of my grandmas. Okay. Uh, they were both dead before I was born. In fact, my mom's mom died when she had her last child. Oh, so she died. And so there were no grandchildren born yet. So. Mm -hmm. None of her grandchildren knew that the grandma on that side. I, uh, I often wondered what it would have been like to go and visit my grandma on the farm. You hear other people talking about their grandparents and they go and visit. And so I did a lot of research to find out the names of all the, my mom's siblings and, and uh, where they lived and kind of what they're like. What they're like, yeah. yeah. And what they're going to school. Um, 
my uncle Walter tells me he's, he went to a SS number six, which is the little school located at Siberia Forks, which is past St. Francis Memorial Hospital. Okay. Peter Glovteski lives on that site today. But, and he, in the summertime, no, in, yeah, in the summertime they would cut across the field, across the farm. But in the wintertime they would have to walk into Barry's Bay and then uh, cut across. And he said there was no houses there. And he said part of that, part of that town was called Asheville. Okay. Because there was a gentleman, Gordon, Gordy Ash, that lived in that area. So they called it Asheville. But there were hardly any houses there, he told me. And so they could cut across. They weren't going through anybody's property or anything. So um, the schools, so they were called SS and then a number. Yeah. So SS means school section. Okay. Um, the area was divided up into school sections. So SS, the school section, and then number 10 and the name of the township. So SS number 6, Sherwood. And some of the... The one-room schoolhouses were mostly all public schools, mm -hmm. but then there was an SS number six public and an SS number six separate, because St. Joseph's school was started off as SS number six separate school. Okay, and what was the difference then between the private and the separate schools? Um, they, were were they? Both, they were both funded, but it seems the Catholics went to the separate school and the non-Catholics went to the public schools, although my mother's family, my mother and her siblings went to the public school because back in those days, if I understand it correctly, if you live three miles outside of the community, you have to go to a public school. And only the, the students that lived in the community or in the town went to the separate school. Oh, okay. So it's very, I guess, kind of different from like the rules they have now with the Catholic and public schools, because I know... Because now for Catholic schools, you have to have like your baptism certificate, correct? Okay, yeah, that's what I thought. Because I, I went to Wilno for most of my grade school. And yeah. I was little when I entered, so I don't know. But, but they would take non-Catholics in the separate school, but they have to pay a fee. Oh, okay. Because I guess their, their taxes were directed to the public school system, so to attend the separate school system. They had to pay a fee. Because when I was growing up and going to the separate school, there were a few non-Catholics mm -hmm. attending. But they had to pay. Hmm. Yeah, I guess the funding probably for that has changed as well, mm -hmm. <laughs> I'm sure. Um, so you were saying earlier that you kind of have looked into like the, the schooling and the one-room one schools and the schoolhouses. Um, do you want to talk about that a little bit, kind of what you know? I think I had mentioned something about the the biscuit box, I think, house? Okay. Yeah, the one-room schoolhouses were usually built at crossroads okay. in an area, and often the land was donated by the landowner, or uh, they sold it to the school trustees of the school for a, a very small price. In the, the biscuit box school, in Barry's Bay, the first separate school was built in 1902, and it was built where on the corner of Upyungle Line and Conway Street. Okay. It's where Tessie and Don Nicholas had a store, and now it's a private residence. 
then that school was too small, so they built the school where the beer store is now. Okay. Uh, most people remember it as St. Joseph's High School, but it was built as a separate school. It had two rooms, and then they built on another one at the back. Then it was overcrowded, mm -hmm. so they rented space in this in a house, just a couple of doors down. Um, and the house was the shape of a soda biscuit box. And so the students nicknamed it Bis Biscuit Box School. <laughs> that house still stands. Actually, it was for sale. They, had, well, they first started out with one class downstairs, and then they had another class upstairs. But to access the upstairs, you had to go outside. The steps were on the outside, on the exterior of the house. And after the first, after the um, students stopped using it, the first family to buy the house was uh, Michael and Tessie Lukasavich. Okay. And Tessie Lukasavich was a great uh, cook, uh, particularly of uh, wedding cakes. So she almost had, had a bakery, like a wedding cake bakery, in the biscuit box schoolhouse. And um, I talked to their son, and he said when they first bought the place, he was a couple of years old, and they just used the downstairs because they had to go outside to go upstairs. Oh, and right. They, and then later on, they fixed it up. And Susie Lukasavich was the last one to live there, who was married to Lorne Lukasavich. And now the house was, is for sale, and I think it was sold. Well, that's very interesting. Yeah, I never even thought, yeah, because of the stairs on the outside, that would be very tedious to live in, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, that has a very interesting history in that house then. So and then after, um, St. Joseph's School was built beside St. Hedwig's Church in 1929, and the students were all transferred there January of 1930. Mm -hmm. And so the school where the beer store is, it was closed. They referred to it as the old separate school. And it became like a courthouse. Okay. Uh, they held elections there. They had dances there. And the Department of Highways rented, rented it for a while. And I think a family lived there. Then in 1948, St. Joseph's School uh, St. Joseph's School had some high school grades. Mm -hmm. It became overcrowded, so they moved the high school back to the old separate school. Oh my gosh. And it became, in 1948, it became St. Joseph's High School. And I talked to some of the uh, ones that were in the first class, and they said it was so cold in there, they were freezing, they had to wear their coats. <laughs> Probably mittens, maybe two, yeah. some ladies. <laughs> might be kind of hard to write with mitts on. And the girls back then wore uniforms. Um, the girls' uniforms were black with white collars and white um, cuffs. Okay. And the boys, I guess, just dress pants and shirts. And I don't think they wore ties. So they wore uniforms. Okay. You never have to wear one then. Yes, we did. You did? But when I got, by the time I got to high school, our uniforms had changed. Okay. Our uniforms were a green jumper okay. with white blouses. And we all, everybody got their, their uniform sold and you just bought two white blouses. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, we got our material at uh, Eddie Polbetsky's store, okay. which is uh, the penny saver today. And there was a Mrs. Skuse who was a sewer, and she sold probably all of her uniforms. She must have been very busy, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> Had the pattern. I think she up. charged two dollars to sew the uniform. And then, so you, would you get a new one every year? Or just kind of. No, we wore the same one from yeah. grade nine to grade twelve. And just hope it fits the whole time. Yeah. Did you? So did you enjoy going to high school there, or? I, yeah, I did, very much. We had the nuns. Actually, I think there might have been two. At some times, there was two. The nuns had two classes in one room. Like, they might have taught grade 9 and 10 together. Okay. Or 11 and 12 together. That would have been a lot of students to have at once. Did you ever have that big of classes when you taught, or? My first class that I started, we, I had 33 students. And they had no kindergarten. And they, they, I remember my first day of teaching. It was so quiet. The kids were all looking at me, and at the thought came to me, I had somebody say something. <laughs> it's just too quiet. What grade did you teach? I started grade one. Okay. And so they were so eager to learn. And they were just saying, tell us what to do, we'll do it. Yeah. And I had some very influent. I had the students of influential people in town, so I have to really um, like. I was very shy. Yeah. And so, and that year, I think when I started to teach, they started parent-teacher interviews before they didn't have that. Like I had Dr. Smith's daughter in my class. I had Jeff Post, who was the principal at the high school, in my class. I had uh, Greg Kelly. John, John Blosky, and his mother was a teacher. Um, Jimmy O'Malley. So uh, the twins, the Yakabuski twins, Mark and Martin. Okay. So the, those interviews probably helped build your confidence, I would think, a bit. Yeah. For sure. Did you ever run into problems with parents, or no? Not really. No. No. Not back then. I remember um, in my last interview they were saying that. Kind of when you got in trouble with school, you might get the strap. This was like when they were children. So, did you have any experiences like that? Like, how were your parents when? Did you ever get in trouble? Well, I never got in trouble because I, I was, I was one that I always want. I did what I was shy. I did what I was told. Yeah. And I loved going to school, and I loved doing my schoolwork. Did your siblings ever get in trouble in school? Or no? I can't remember back then. I don't think so. Yeah. So, but when parent-teacher interviews started, not I, the parents were shy too, and so not all parents came for interviews. Do you think growing up, you kind of did what you were told? You never really questioned it. Now, with your own kids, did you have the same experience, or did that kind of change? My children, when they were growing up. They spent a lot of time outside too, like I did. Mm -hmm. Like I didn't know where they were until it was mealtime. <laughs> and now with this COVID-19, mm -hmm. my daughter is in Calgary and she had to homeschool two little ones. Okay. And when it was finished, she didn't know what she was going to do with them. Like mm -hmm. what kind of activities, because she said she couldn't really take them to the beach or to the park or put them in a camp. 
And so I emailed her and I said, well, I don't remember arranging activities when you were growing up. Yeah. So she sends me this email back and she says, Mom, I grew up in the 1980s in a small town. I went to summer rec. We played outside. Um, she said, if I let my children do that, I'd have the police knocking on my door <laughs> more than once. <laughs> That's very true. I know even um, when I was babysitting in high school, like, even the toys that they had and things like that, and the things that they want to be on the TV and computer and all that, and I'm like, don't you want to go inside? Like, it's so nice though. So yeah, it definitely, definitely has changed for sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, parenting is very different than it used to be, I'm sure. I can't remember ever being bored growing up. There's always something to do or... I'm sure you're probably one of those people too that you didn't need to be told, you just kind of went about and did it. Mm. And then like even helping to peel potatoes for the meals and gathering the eggs and feeding the animals. Did you ever, when you, because you were saying that you, you had to walk quite a distance kind of to get to places and things like that. Did it ever bother you or you just kind of took it as that's the way it was? Walking never bothered me except the cold. I do remember the winters. Mm -hmm. It would be so cold walking home from school. And in those days, the girls could not wear slacks. Oh, okay. And so it would be so cold, I'd cry. I would be crying because I was so cold. And I'd get home and I'd get behind the box stove and I'd often fall asleep and then I'd wake up and have to do my homework. But it, no, the distance, the walking didn't bother me, but the cold. Yeah, well it's so frigid up here too. Like I know even growing up waiting for the bus, I found it cold, so I can't imagine walking. And there wasn't the attire back then. Um, back then, our, even our snow boots, they didn't have a lot of lining or insulation. It was usually just the boot that went over our shoes. That's okay. why our feet were freezing. Yeah, it wouldn't do much for protection for sure in the snow. <laughs> Can't imagine. Now, for winter activities, you're talking about tobogganing. Did you ever go skating or ice fishing or anything like that in your family? Not when I was growing up. I, I remember hearing about Barbara Ann Scott. She was a famous figure skater, and I wanted a pair of skates so badly. The boys had a pair of skates that somebody gave them and sometimes I would put them on and go and, and skate on a pond that had frozen over. Mm -hmm. But I never really had my own skates and so we never skated. We never ice fished either, not when I was growing up. Yeah, so it was ice skating kind of more of like a luxury almost to have the skates because they were probably pretty expensive. Yeah, it would have been. So it wasn't very common for other people to I don't think any, I don't think many of the, the children growing up in my, at least not the farm children, yeah. the girls would have had skates. I did buy a pair of skates after I grew up because we used to take the students from school skating to the old arena, okay. where, which is the parking lot for Value Mart now. Okay, I remember hearing that there used to be a rink there. And uh, so I bought myself a pair of skates, but I really never learned to skate very well. Uh, so I guess this is kind of a good time to ask for this. So um, looking back, is there anything you would change or do differently, do you think? 
I think looking back, I think when I started to work, when I started to teach, work came first. And one of my regrets is that I should have had a better balance between work and my children. Even long weekends, I would be at the school doing bulletin boards and my, my children would come with me, of course. Mm -hmm. I think I should have had a better balance there and taken them out and giving them experiences, yeah. like taking them to places. Uh, and the other regret I have is when I was teaching, um, the way we were taught is mainly to teach. And then after it changed, that you looked at the whole child. And I think today, um, and I think back when I knew some of the students were having difficulties at home, that I didn't, wasn't there to support them more in their, in their difficulties that they were going through. Uh, I was always afraid to bring up anything that was at home because I felt that wasn't my concern. Mm -hmm. And maybe, you know, but I think looking back, I could have reached out and supported these children with yeah. the difficulties more. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's always tough looking back to change things and see things yeah. differently. We never really know until after, I guess. My children always came first. Like, they would, I would do without and get them things. But I, I think I should have taken them and out and given them more experiences, like taking them, taking them to maybe Storyland and out yeah. <laughs> for a picnic and things, and like, things that. like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think being a teacher is a hard thing though, because I think a lot of people think it's just when you're in school, like that's the time you spend, but they don't realize you have to mark homework and like make the curriculum and stuff. Because I know Rhonda Lundy, I used yeah. to babysit her girls, and I remember in the summertime she would go to the school pretty often to set things up. And to me, I was a, I always thought, oh, you have the summer off, like why are you going to this school? But, there's a lot of work yeah. behind it that I don't think a lot of people realize for sure. In the summertime too, a lot of teachers took courses. Mm -hmm. See, when I went to teacher's college, it was out of grade 13. And so in the summertime, Barry's Bay became an off-campus satellite school for Ottawa University. Oh. And many of the teachers, the local teachers, took courses in the summer. and. In, and also in the winter, on the weekends, and that's how we got our Bachelor of Ed. Oh, okay. So you were busy right through then. Mm -hmm. It was probably nice that you could come here and, and do it then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I, got, I have two degrees, my Bachelor of Arts and the Bachelor of Ed, and I, I didn't spend one day inside a classroom in a university. That's very impressive. <laughs> hey, that's kind of where we're going right now, I guess. <laughs> All my classes um, in this in the fall are going to be online, so I guess I can say part of my degree will be not in the classroom. Yeah. Um, so I had read um, that you kind of have some history about the St. Hedwig's Church. Well, we celebrated a hundred. St. Hedwig celebrated a hundred years mm -hmm. back in twenty. It was a couple fourteen, of years and so we did a centen centennial book called the Stallat. Okay. And I was one of the uh, three people that wrote Okay, the I think that's the one that I had seen then. Okay, I thought I'd seen something, but I wasn't quite sure. I worked on the families, because a lot of families had moved away and they didn't, uh, 
there was nobody to write the story, so I encouraged a lot of families to write their stories, or I wrote them. I would interview them and then write the stories and then get them to edit it or whatever. Kind of, yeah. And so I tried to get at least most of the founding families, but I didn't get them all because they just, where do you contact them after they're, you know? Especially they in a hundred years, there's yes. so many people and they've moved away and there are no descendants mm -hmm. around. Yeah, so how, how many families probably contributed that, would you know off the top of your head or no? In, like, to, to building the church there? When the church started, when the church, when the parish was formed in 1914, mm -hmm. I think there were 13 founding families. Wow. Two of them left and went to the States, but I was able to trace them through their senses and things. Oh, very interesting. write a little bit about them. I think that kind of wraps up about everything that I was, uh, um, is there anything you want to add, anything we didn't talk about, your siblings, anything like that? Question? I think, yeah, but I think like in the 1950s, Barry's Bay really uh, experienced an economic expansion. Okay. Before that it was kind of a, it started off as, I guess, as a lumbering town. Mm -hmm. And the train coming through town also helped the, the village to uh, develop. But in the 50s, we got a theater. We got a, a health center. That was, yeah, in the health center. Okay. Uh, we got uh, some more restaurants. So it really built up. It then. really built up. Yeah. Do you think, was that more so because of after the war? Like, the, there's. Was there, did you, like, a lot of people kind of left and then came back, or? No, I just think it was just a time when everything was developing, like hydro came in. Mm -hmm. um, like, I remember when hydro came, like, past our farm. Everybody got hydro, but we didn't. Oh, no! <laughs> I remember when Highway 60 was paved. Um, I think it was paid like in 1948. Before I started school, it was a dirt road. And then it was paved, and I can remember being fascinated by those green, by those green pressed little stones. Yeah, yeah. Because I had never seen pavement before, <laughs> or a paved road before. When, when did you get hydro on your farm? We never did. You never did? No. Oh, okay. If I may, can I close with the poem just a minute? Yeah. Yeah. That's a poem that really influenced my life. Yeah, I think you mentioned it earlier, right? And it's, um, I have only just a minute, only 60 seconds in it. Forced upon me, can't refuse it. Didn't seek it, didn't choose it. But it's up to me to use it. I must suffer if I lose it. Give account if I abuse it. Just a tiny little minute. But eternity is in it. Thank you, that's awesome. Okay. Thank you, Martina. It was a pleasure talking with you. That was Martina Coolis in conversation with Teresa Prince as they discussed the life and times of the Upper Madawaska Valley during the mid-20th century. And a special note on that interesting poem you just heard Teresa recite from Childhood Memory, and one with a unique history all its own. It's called God's Minute and was an anonymous poem made famous in the early 1950s by Dr. Benjamin E. Mays, a black intellectual credited with founding the American Civil Rights Movement. He was also a mentor to his most famous student, 
Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., and is credited with inspiring King's effort to work for social justice through civil disobedience and nonviolent protest. Even today, in the era of Black Lives Matter, God's Minute is often remembered, if not recited, during civil rights protest. We'd like to thank Martina Koulis, as well as the station keepers who launched this new oral history project. Most of all, we'd like to give a huge shout out to Teresa Prince for freely sharing her unique memories and wonderful stories with us here today. I'm Kristen Marchand, and along with the producer of the Opiongo line, Barry Conway, we wish you a good day and God bless. <laughs>